Welcome to the A Catholic Life Podcast. I am Matthew, the author of A Catholic Life, welcoming you to episode 49 of the A Catholic Life Podcast. In today's episode on the third Sunday after Epiphany, I'm happy to address the following topics. First, the National Prayer of Penance for Violations Against Human Life. It is tomorrow, and it is in the United States, a mandatory day of penance. So I'll have more information on that. Secondly, I address the upcoming feast days this week. As we learn more and more about these saints throughout the liturgical year, we can better incorporate their virtues into our own life. And lastly, we are nearly at Septuagesima, the period of preparation of two and a half weeks before the beginning of the Great Lenten Fast. And as such, this upcoming Saturday is the burial of the Alleluia and the last time we say that most beautiful prayer until Easter. So I'll have more on the customs associated with the burial of the Alleluia at the end of this episode. But before we get into these topics, I'd like to stop and thank the sponsor for today's episode. This episode is sponsored by CatechismClass.com. CatechismClass.com is the leader in online traditional Catholic catechism classes. They proudly offer everything from online children's catechism classes to RCIA classes, to classes for adults to continue learning and diving into the traditional Catholic faith. They also offer marriage preparation, baptismal preparation classes, confirmation preparation, quinceanera classes, catechist training courses, and so much more. It is never too late to study the fullness of the Catholic faith, and catechismclass.com is the gold standard in authentic and traditional Catholic formation online. So please check them out today at catechismclass.com. On to the first topic of today's episode. It's very important, I think, to mention that tomorrow, January 22nd, is the Day of Penance for Violations Against Human Life. When January 22nd falls on a Sunday, the day is moved back a day. But this year, January 22nd is a Monday, so we will observe it on Monday. And this, of course, is the anniversary of the disastrous Roe versus Wade court decision. And while we are, of course, on the other side of that decision, while it has been gratefully overturned by the Supreme Court just recently, we have so much more work to do to ensuring we protect the sanctity of all human life from conception to natural death and to doing everything we can to provide mothers and those struggling with financial resources everything we can to raise their children. We also must do everything we can to ensure people understand that artificial contraception is opposed to the will of God. It is not the answer, and we must encourage everybody to practice chastity and true Christian modesty as well. So there's much work we need to be doing at the state level in the United States and around the world and other countries to not only make abortion illegal to the fullest extent of the law in all cases, but because, of course, it is the murder of an innocent life. And that child who is murdered does not have baptism and cannot enter into heaven. So while we do everything we can to support human life for that, we must also do everything that we can to ensure that, that uh, marriage and family life is safeguarded here in America, that contraception hopefully one day is illegal as well, and that the Catholic faith really is first and foremost. We must make abortion and contraception unthinkable, not because it's illegal, 
but because it is such an egregious violation against God's law, and it is so evil, and it is truly a sacrament of the devil himself. So January 22nd, I ask you to join me in a mandatory day of penance and prayer for human life. Um, Some years ago, Cardinal William Keeler responded when asking if fasting and abstaining from meat was required on this day. He said, quote, it is not asked, but obliged by all the faithful under church law. It cannot be substituted with acts of charity or service. I hope the pastors inform their parishioners of this from the pulpit last Sunday, end quote. So please put on the calendar, January 22nd, a mandatory day of fasting and prayer and doing whatever we can in our own states, in our own communities, to make abortion and contraception unthinkable and illegal. On to the second topic of today's episode. I'd like to discuss, as I often do, the upcoming feast days this week. And this week as well is replete with so many saints worth celebrating. January 22nd is also, as I mentioned, as the day of prayer and penance uh, for reparation for the offenses against human life. It is liturgically the feast day of St. Vincent of Saragossa. He's also called St. Vincent the Deacon or St. Vincent of Aragon. He is considered one of the three most illustrious deacons of the church, the others being St. Stephen the First Martyr and St. Lawrence. Of course, St. Stephen highly venerated. He was the first martyr of the church and and murdered, um, you know, very early on. In fact, the Holy Scriptures record of it. And St. Lawrence uh, was really regarded from very early time by the Romans, for the sacrifice that he made. And in fact, St. Lawrence's feast day was a holy day of obligation for a long time, and so was St. Stephen's as well. And there were octaves associated with both of those deacons. And St. Vincent, while he did not have an octave, joins them as one of the three most illustrious deacons. He was born um, and ultimately died in the year, uh, well, he ultimately died in the year 304 in Valencia. So he was he was born around that area. And he was martyred during the persecutions of Diocletian, the following by Father Pius Parsh is a short account of his death. Quote, ordained deacon by Bishop Valerius of Saragossa, he was taken and changed to Valencia during the Diocletian persecution and put to death. From legend, we have the following details of his martyrdom. After brutal scourging in the presence of many witnesses, he was stretched in the rack, but neither torture nor blandishments nor threats could undermine the strength and courage of his faith. Next, he was cast on a heat and grating, lacerated with iron hooks and seared with hot metal plates. Then he was returned to prison, where the floor was heavily strewn with pieces of broken glass. A heavenly brightness, though, flooded the entire dungeon, filling all of who saw it with the greatest awe. After this, he was placed on a soft bed in the hope that lenient treatment would induce apostasy, since torture had proven ineffective. But strengthened by faith in Christ Jesus and the hope of everlasting life, Vincent maintained an invincible spirit and overcame all efforts, whether by fire, sword, rack, or torture, to induce defection. He persevered to the end and gained the heavenly crown of martyrdom." Now, more than 300 years after the martyrdom of St. Vincent, St. Anastasius the Persian, a convert from the priestly class of Magi, endured a similar martyrdom in distant Assyria. He is also commemorated liturgically on this particular day. Through all the Christian centuries, the various martyrs of the East and the West have united their sacrifices to that of Calvary for the salvation of every man born into the world. May St. Vincent and St. Anastasius Anastasius, who we celebrate liturgically tomorrow, pray for us and for the end of abortion in the United States and throughout the entire world before the wrath of God strikes down whole nations. Please say, Lord, have mercy. 
Now, January 23rd is the traditional feast day of St. Raymond of Penufold, who happens to be the third master of the Dominican order. He was born in Catalonia, Spain in 1175 to noble parents. He became a philosophy teacher around the age of 20 and later a priest. St. Raymond joined the Dominicans in the year 1218, and in 1230 he was summoned to Rome by Pope Gregory the ninth and assigned to collect all official letters of the Pope since the year 1150. St. Raymond gathered the letters and published them in five volumes known as the Decretals. Now, as a side note, the Decretals are very influential as they really form a early, early basis of canon law. And in fact, I actually went through some of the Decretals to study the fasting and holy days established in those Decretals to show in the book, The Definitive Guide to Catholic Fasting and Absence, the decline of that practice over time. In the year 1238, St. Raymond became the Master General of the Dominicans. After reviewing the order's rule to ensure everything was legally correct with church law, he resigned his position a few years later in 1240 to dedicate himself to parish work. He also declined the offer to become an archbishop to focus on the parish work he loved in Spain. His compassion helped many people return to God through the sacrament of confession. St. Raymond started a school to teach missionaries the language and culture of the non-Christians needing to be evangelized in northern Africa and Spain, and along with St. Thomas Aquinas, he wrote a booklet explaining the truths of the faith in a way non-believers could easily understand. That is something that we certainly can keep in mind, how we can share these truths we have the faith we know, both online, in person, through written form, through conversation, and through every means that we have in front of us, understanding that each of us has our own unique abilities, our own unique gifts, our own spheres of influence. But like St. Raymond, we can do what we can to influence the conversion of others. He ultimately died on January 6, 1275 in Spain of natural causes. Another thing worth mentioning is that this week, as of this point, we are still in the octave of prayer of Christian unity. I discussed in the week and the past week's episode. So in addition to venerating these saints this particular week, we should call to mind as well the importance of praying for the conversion of non-Catholics and those who have lapsed from the faith. There's many prayers we can find for that. Uh, if you check out the link to last week's episode and you go to the show notes, I have the link in there, and the episode itself has more information on the importance of praying for it. Just coming, uh, just important, I think, for us to call to mind that this week, both today, tomorrow, really until uh, January 25th is up to coming Thursday, are all still part of the week of octave of prayer of Christian unity. I talked about it in last week's episode, but it's still highly relevant now. But going on, another thing I think is worth mentioning, that January 23rd in some places is kept, that is, uh, in the supplement to the traditional Catholic Missal, the Masses in Some Places section of the Missal lists January 23rd as a feast day in honor of the betrothal of the Virgin Mary with St. Joseph. To this day is also referred to as the espousals of the Blessed Virgin Mary. It's important to remember that Our Lady was not an unwed mother. I talked about it in a previous episode this past Advent. And one of the reasons we can say this is because she was legally married to Joseph. There was a different right at that time as marriage was done under Jewish law. These espousals very much were binding on marriage, but it was at the second uh, in, um, part of the ceremony that would happen later on that a husband would actually take his wife into her home. But Mary and Joseph were truly legally married, and this particular feast day was one with a very rich history that goes back uh, into the 1700s 
and beforehand. And I'll have much more information in the show notes. The Catholic Encyclopedia has a wonderful entry on devotion to St. Joseph that's worth considering on this feast day. And it also has a great section talking about where this feast day dates from. It really dates back to uh, 1517 or so, when nine other masses in honor of Mary were granted by Leo X to the nuns of the Annunciation. This feast was originally celebrated on October 22nd as a double of the second class, and it goes on to have changed over time. Uh, In fact, the Servites had a feast day uh, also in honor of the Espousals of the Virgin Mary. The article talks at length on how this feast day changed and how it was celebrated in other parts of the world, even though it was never on the full Catholic calendar. But all that being said, January 23rd is also a great day for us to call to mind that Mary and Joseph were truly married, and may we invoke their intercession for all married couples, the newly married, those who have been married a long time, those who are struggling in their marriage to resist uh, any temptations, to resist divorce, to persevere uh, in the struggles in which every family is facing, whether it be financial, whether it be spiritual, whether it be physical, that we should call to mind the Holy Family and intercede for them as a charitable work this week, especially on January 23rd. Now going on January 24th, this is a traditional feast day in honor of St. Timothy. He was not only a co-worker and companion to St. Paul, but also his spiritual son. St. Timothy was converted and baptized into the true faith during St. Paul's first missionary journey, and St. Timothy was later ordained a priest at a young age by St. Paul. St. Timothy eventually became the bishop of Ephesus when St. Paul consecrated him. It was 30 years after St. Paul's martyrdom that St. Timothy followed his friend in martyrdom, after he, St. Timothy, was stoned to death. So he fell asleep in the Lord on January the 24th. One thing that I think is worth interesting is the traditional Matins reading for the day. Here's what it says in part, quote, The apostle addressed two of his epistles to him to instruct him to discharge his pastoral office. He could not endure to see sacrifice which is due to God alone offered to the idols of devils. And finding that the people of Ephesus were offering victims to Diana on her festival, he strove to make them desist from their impious rites, but they turning upon him stoned him. The Christians could not deliver him from their hands till he was more dead than alive, and they carried him to a mountain not far from town, and then on the ninth of the calendars of February, that is January 24th, he fell asleep in the the Lord, end quote. It goes to show you he suffered martyrdom and died because he resisted pagan sacrifice and could not stand to see false religions honored. We should have that same zeal when we see the false deities of other religions and especially the spirit of falsehood that is entering the church today when people believe they can pray to other deities or people believe it's okay to be parts of other religion. This sort of spirit must be condemned and let us invoke St. Timothy as well as St. Paul who did much to fight against and triumph over paganism and all other false religions to understand it is only the Catholic faith that saves us. And of course, we remember it this week during the Octave of Prayer of Christian Unity. January 25th is the final day of that Octave of Prayer of Christian Unity, and it is the feast day in honor of the conversion of St. Paul. In fact, the Church celebrates only one feast day centered on someone's conversion, and that is January 25th, the conversion of St. Paul. We remember and we realize how extraordinary it was that through God's divine light on the road to Damascus, St. Paul came not only to believe in our Lord, but serve him until death. 
Through St. Paul's preaching, the church was formed. His conversion was fundamental, but others have in our time experienced similar conversions. We, of course, remember that St. Paul was one of the people who fought against the Christians early on, who persecuted them. We don't know definitively, at least from the scriptures, if St. Paul literally helped in the stoning of St. Stephen, but his influence certainly also, uh, you could be said, brought about the the murder of St. Stephen, the first martyr of the church. But, of course, St. Stephen prayed, you know, lay this charge not to them, Father, and he prayed for his persecutors. And it is truly believed that this prayers of St. Stephen brought about the conversion of St. Paul. St. Paul's conversion was so foundational, he became one of the great princes of the church. Along with St. Peter, both Peter and Paul are always invoked together in the church's liturgy. His conversion was foundational. It was fundamental. He would go on to baptize thousands and thousands of people. His writings are in the Holy Scriptures. His example is ever before us. I would encourage you to go, as I often say, to the show notes, to click on the link, to learn more on this particular feast day and read on the January 25th entry from the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 9, verses 1 through 22, which is the account of this story recorded in the Holy Scriptures, as well as Dom Guerinjay's section on the conversion of St. Paul in those show notes. It's truly worth recalling that no one is beyond the power of being saved. If you have friends that are atheists, that are pagans, that are Muslims, that are Jews, that have fallen away from the faith, you might despair and say, they just can't change, they won't change. I don't want you or anybody to think about this because if St. Paul, the persecutor of the Christians, could change, anyone can change. So let us pray for them on this final day of the octave of prayer of Christian unity, this Thursday, January 25th. On to the next day, January 26th, is the traditional feast day of St. Polycarp. St. Polycarp was the second century bishop of Smyrna. He wrote, uh, St. Jerome wrote that St. Polycarp was a disciple of St. John the Apostle and that John ordained him bishop of Smyrna. The churches of Asia Minor res- recognized St. Polycarp's leadership and he chose him as a representative to Pope St. Anicetus on the question of the date of Easter celebration. Now, Pope St. Anicetus was the 11th pope who reigned from 154 to 167. And his papacy was marked by a conflict with the Christians under St. Polycarp, who wanted to celebrate Easter three days after Passover. The church, since the time of St. Peter, had instead always ensured that the celebration of Easter would be on a Sunday. To alleviate the situation, Pope St. Anicetus allowed the Christians under St. Polycarp to celebrate Easter this way, and they would continue to do so until the Council of Nicaea suppressed these practices definitively, putting an end to them. Now, according to the martyrdom of St. Polycarp, which is a text, he dies a martyr, bound and burned at the stake, and then stabbed when the fire finally failed to touch him. The acts of Polycarp's martyrdom are the earliest preserved reliable account of a Christian martyr's death. With St. Clement of Rome and St. Ignatius of Antioch, Polycarp is regarded as one of the chief three apostolic fathers. The sole surviving work attributed to his authorship is his letter to the Philippians. And in the link to the show notes to this episode, if you click on January 25th, I have an excerpt from that article, as well as a copy of an excerpt from Butler's Lives of the Saints, which goes over more details regarding his testimony, his martyrdom, and some of the things that he actually said during that heroic preservation and ultimately when he won the crown to enter heaven. The last day of this week, January 27th, is traditional feast day of St. John Chrysostom. 
who is called the greatest of the Greek fathers, and the golden mouth saint. He is venerated not only in Roman Catholic Church, but in the Orthodox churches as well. In the year 347, St. John Chrysostom was born in Antioch. His father died soon after his birth, and St. John was raised by his pious mother. He became a monk as well as a priest and a preacher for a dozen years of Syria, and he developed a stomach ailment there, though, and remained with him his entire life. At first, though, as a monk, he lived as a hermit, studying under a, a, of a pious monk as well. It was because of his sermons that he earned the title Chrysostom, meaning golden mouth. St. John was made Bishop of Constantinople in the year 398, and as bishop, he criticized the rich for not sharing their wealth. He fought to reform the clergy. He prevented the sale of ecclesiastical offices for gain. He called for fidelity in marriage and encouraged practices of justice and charity. Because of his work to force the rich to help the poor, he was exiled twice from his diocese. He was banished and ultimately died on the way as his place to banishment in the year of 407. And while traveling there, exhausted and dying, his final words were, Glory to God for all things. May we have those same words or similar on our mouth when we're just feeling crushed by the burdens of the world and the desires to grow in holiness and trying to do what we can to persevere in virtue. No matter what difficulties come to us, no matter what frustrations, glory to God for all things. St. John Chrysostom is a doctor of the church, and his body is buried in St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. He is the patron saint of Constantinople, of epilepsy, of orders, and of preachers. In the link to the show notes, I have links to homilies of St. John Chrysostom on the Apostle of St. Paul to the Romans, as well as information from some of his writings on the importance to stop blaspheming, as well as to stop using profanity. And there's also, in the link to the show notes, a wonderful set of prayers by St. John Chrysostom, for a prayer for each hour in the day. But as we close this episode, to the final topic of this episode, as a reminder, this Saturday is the day before Septuagesima Sunday. The episode next week, I'll have so much more information on Septuagesima, both Septuagesima Sunday as well as Septuagesima, the season of two and a half weeks of preparation as we begin to lead up to Easter. But starting with first Vespers of Septuagesima Sunday on Saturday evening of this week, the Alleluia now ceases to be said until we proclaim our Lord's resurrection. At First Vespers of Septuagesima Sunday this Saturday, two Alleluias are added to the closing verse of Benedicta, Benedictus Dominum and its response Deo Gracias. Starting with Compline on this Saturday night, that is Compline the, the night uh, office prayed before bed, the word Alleluia is no longer to be prayed or to be said until the Easter Vigil and the proclamation of the Lord's resurrection. So uh, one custom that originated long ago uh, in some parish churches, cathedrals, monastic communities, was literally to beautifully write the word Alleluia, whether it be on a banner or on, on some parchment, to process outside and to literally bury the Alleluia to be dug up only as we enter into the celebration of our Lord's resurrection. It is not fitting that during this period of penance of Lent or on the traditional season of Septuagesima, that this word of the angels, that this word of such joy that we get so used to saying, Alleluia, we should not say it anymore. So this week when we pray, when we say the divine office, when we hear the word Alleluia, remember its days are numbered. This Saturday night, it will be said no more until the Lord's resurrection. Thank you, everybody, for listening. I wish you all a most blessed week, and let us strive for greater holiness this and every other week. Ad maiorum, Dei Gloriam.
Quid olis peccata mu? 